the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. We have all seen pictures of the Apollo astronauts hop-skipping on the moon. Every documentary film also shows the mission controllers at the Johnson Space Center in Houston. What may have escaped your attention were the group of support scientists in a room adjacent to mission control. The Apollo Science Room's task was to watch closely what the astronauts were doing on the moon and advise them on what to do. In episode 8 of Lunar Science, we hear from two of the scientists involved and find what advice they have for the Artemis program. Harrison Smith was, and still is, a geologist. He went to the moon on Apollo 17 in 1972. In February of 2021, he recounted the history of the Apollo Science Room. Well, thank you very much, and uh, good morning to everyone. It's great to be with you. Uh, the uh, Science Backroom history is uh, really quite colorful. Uh, it's nice to relive it. Uh, Gene Shoemaker really came up with the concept when uh, I and Gordon Swan and others were working with him in 1964-65, uh, before I entered pilot training. Uh, and once uh, I'd gotten through the, the, the training phase and we were actually working uh, to get Apollo 11 uh, put together and planned, uh, I uh, suggested to Gene Kranz that he talk to Gordon Swan uh, about uh, the studies they had been doing, which uh, were related to uh, science support rooms uh, out in Flagstaff. And uh, Swan and Kranz got together, and that really, I think, was the germination of the, the Apollo 11 uh, science support room, which was carried on through, throughout Apollo. Uh, Apollo 11 17 uh, near real-time air-to-ground transcriptions was probably the, one of the greatest uh, contributions that came out of the uh, survey's involvement, Gordon Swan in particular, 
in that uh, he suggested that we use court recorders uh, to uh, put a, a near real-time transcript up on an IDAFOR in the Mission Control Center. And and that indeed was done. And they so that at that point, uh, Mission Control and everyone else had a, a transcript that was only about 30 seconds behind the uh, the actual transmissions. Apollo 11 uh, activities of the SSR were not not major, uh, there, uh, but uh, one of the things was where in the world did they land? As you all may recall, uh, Neil had to uh, translate down range uh, quite a bit. Uh, we were not totally familiar with the MASCONs at that time and how they were per perturbing the the orbits. Uh, and uh, uh, Swan and his team finally, I think it was about three weeks later, actually were able uh, to, through, uh, through examination of photography taken by the crew, uh, find the, the location of the landing site. Apollo 12 and through 17, there was increased interaction, particularly with Capcoms. Uh, and, uh, and in 15 and 17, uh, there was particularly a great deal of uh, EBA replanning, uh, and that generally went well. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. Uh, that experience, uh, those support room activities were indeed transferred onto Skylab shuttle and the uh, International Space Station. Now, what are the advantages of having a science support room? Uh, they probably really haven't changed very much from when we first conceived of it. It certainly relieves the flight director and Capcom of, of making the science trade-off uh, analyses that uh, often will be required based on either time constraints or actual hardware problems or what have you. Uh, it brings those, uh, namely the scientists with the most interest in the results, into the action. Uh, and I think we can, as I'll talk about in a few moments, uh, I think we can do more of that. Uh, provides a mechanism for interaction between science and and the operations and engineering support rooms. Uh, they were all in the same building and presumably will be in the fact so you could run down the hall and, and discuss uh, uh, overlapping uh, interests at any time. And it was particularly important uh, support for long duration uh, lunar and Mars missions to provide advanced exploration recommendations based on previous findings. Uh, we did a, a, some of that, particularly on the last three missions uh, with Apollo, but as you well know, the longer you're going to be on the moon or eventually on Mars, uh, that kind of, uh, of uh, planning related to the findings of the previous day or the previous week are go is going to be increasingly important. Uh, now, let's just, uh, I hate to talk about problems, but we did have problems. Uh, and I'll primarily focus on Apollo 17. Uh, uh, one of the ones that was most frustrating to the crew uh, was the reluctance of the SSR to give up on the, uh, the uh, surface electrical properties receiver. It had not been designed properly for thermal or uh, for, uh, well, thermal protection or resistance. And uh, although it did get data on the uh, uh, for, uh, first and second EVAs, uh, it uh, it did take up a lot of time uh, with the ground when it was clear that it was not recording any longer. Uh, also, there was a belief, I think, in the science support room uh, that the PI for the uh, 
uh, lunar surface gravimeter, which really was a gravity wave detector, had adequately tested the uncaging of that instrument. And, and, uh, and I was disappointed in, a, in the disinterest that was shown in a suggestion that we, uh, we tilt the uh, experiment uh, away from level in order to get that beam uh, uh, uncaged. And uh, there was also a recommendation, I believe, from the science support room to depart from our established uh, routine of two-man operations at Station 3. Now, those, those are just the personal ones that, that come to mind that, that uh, bothered me the most. Uh, there also was a, uh, an issue of there being no control over the use of the television. And the television often had wandered off uh, looking at things that uh, had nothing to do with the immediate issues that needed to be addressed. Now, in Apollo 12, uh, crew reaction uh, to the Apollo 11 uh, science criticisms was really too bad. Uh, scientists have got to uh, keep their uh, personal feelings about the use of, of various terms uh, to themselves. It, it can, uh, the crew can react to these kind of things. If you have a geologist on board, uh, the geologist doesn't really care about that. Uh, but uh, people who are not used to scientific interactions uh, will react differently. And in this particular case, uh, there had been scientific criticism of Buzz Aldrin's use of the term mica to describe what the sparkly surface looked like. And indeed, it looks like it's got mica in it. The crew had seen this kind of, of uh, phenomena on their, on their various field trips mica sparkling in stream beds and the like. Uh, and some scientists criticized them because they said, no, there can't be any mica on the moon. Well, that's ridiculous. It looked like mica, and that's what we asked the crew to do. You've got to remember that kind of thing. Uh, Apollo 14, there was lack of real-time tracking, which hopefully we'll have on Artemis, and that led to a crew missing the crest of a major crater objective. They, they basically got there. They just didn't know that they got there. Uh, Apollo 15, uh, the uh, science support room missed the importance of the discovery of uh, green uh, ash, pyroclastic ash, uh, and, uh, and uh, almost certainly at Spur Crater, uh, we could have gained some of the insights that ultimately we gained on Apollo 17 at Shorty Crater. Uh, there was a lack of operational understanding by scientists and their engineering support, and this was particularly in the early days of putting together the ALSEP. Uh, ALSEP deployment was far too complicated, should have been much more uh, uh, automation involved in it. Uh, it just that those kind of ideas came in too late into the program. And the astronaut office bears some responsibility for that in, uh, in asking the, uh, the Bendix folks to make sure that we had something to do on the moon, as if there wasn't going to be much to do on the moon. Uh, the lack of uh, SSR participation in geological and ALSEP simulations, I think, was a major problem. And I would strongly recommend that once uh, a mission crew is assigned, the simulations are going forward, whether they're uh, run in mission control or actually out on geological problems, uh, the people who are going to man the SSR should be very have very close participation in those kinds of exercises. I think it will pay off uh, handsomely in the future. And then, as I already mentioned, uh, the, uh, the TV's uh, support of EVA activities was not very good. And the television operators also should participate in these uh, field simulations 
so that you get uh, much more continuous, much better coverage of the things that are important scientifically. Now, good results, of course, uh, during Apollo uh, were many. EVA replanning overnight usually went very well. In the case of Mars, of course, that's probably going to be planning over several days. Uh, uh, but uh, overnight planning went well. For example, uh, there was a lot of discussion, as I understand it, uh, about going uh, uh, back to Shorty once we uh, once I discovered the uh, the orange soil uh, uh, and and giving up on Van Surg. I'm certainly glad that they did not do that. In fact, as I'm currently working on Van Surg samples, and they're really very very uh, interesting samples that we wouldn't have gotten had the and we made that decision. Uh, you've got to basically believe that your your pre-planning uh, done uh, in the uh, quiet of the evening in the crew quarters and various other places is going to be very good. And particularly with the LROC coverage of the moon now and any landing site that we go to, uh, that pre-planning ought to be your, your default uh, decision anytime something comes up doesn't mean that you won't uh, take advantage of some uh, new discovery, uh, but uh, be careful that you, uh, you uh, change those uh, original plans until you have enough information to, to feel that uh, such a change will be worthwhile. Apollo 11, uh, Apollo 17's reallocation of time, uh, shortening of the drive to station uh, uh, one was important. The outset just took, as always, took far longer to deploy than it should have. And then the deletion of Station 10 uh, was, a, was an excellent decision, uh, it turns out, uh, because uh, we already had good uh, coverage of the Mar basalt uh, geology, uh, primarily from Station 1, but also from other samples that we had taken. Now, I just suggest that uh, slight reorganization of the, of the SSR in support of the uh, missions uh, this uh, diagram you can uh, later study uh, at your leisure. It should be kept simple. Uh, the experiment anomaly evaluation is something that uh, uh, I, was probably not well done in the Apollo system. I was not there, and uh, Jim Head later on may be able to uh, discuss that in more detail. Uh, but we had the, uh, I've already mentioned the two major experiment problems we had on Apollo 17. And it just seemed to the crew, at least, that uh, there was a, a great deal of uh, spinning of wheels in order to come up with decisions uh, that ultimately cost uh, exploration time. Uh, discovery response team, uh, primarily made up of field geologists. Uh, I think it was important uh, uh, in that, uh, uh, for example, when, we when I discovered the orange soil at uh, Shorty Crater, uh, there really was not a, a mechanism by which the SSR could participate in in the sampling and other kinds of things that we did there. There's a little bit of spinning of wheels, and so the crew basically took charge uh, in real time. We didn't have a lot of time. We only had about 30 minutes at the station, and in the final analysis, uh, we did, I think, a, a pretty good job of getting the samples, having spent a lot of time looking at the, uh, the data that came from those uh, samples. Uh, one sample was missed, and uh, it's too bad that uh, that either I or the ground did not realize that we had uh, had not gotten one of the samples that we should have, and that was the uh, pyroclastic ash uh, sample next to the 
light gray regolith that had covered that ash and protected it. Uh, Real-time transcripts, uh, that obviously now can be automated, but it's still very important to have. Uh, and, uh, and whether that's a function of the uh, science support room or mission control itself uh, is something to be worked out. Uh, and uh, you need to have a, a, a team that is continuously and very rapidly keeping track of the sampling and the feature documentation that has taken place on any particular EVA. Uh, and then uh, the same goes for making sure that your samples are all properly identified. I don't think on Apollo 17 we, we missed any uh, identifications of samples. I'm a little bit concerned about the numbering of samples in the trench I dug at Station 3. Uh, but uh, the more I look at it, the more we may have actually gotten that right. They're just, it's a, they're, those samples are complicated, uh, and it's something I'll continue to look at, particularly in the context of the Anxica examinations that we're undertaking at the present time. Well, that was geologist astronaut Harrison Smith. One of the scientists in the Apollo Science Room was James Head. These days, he is on the staff of the Department of Earth, Environmental and Planetary Sciences at Brown University, which is in Providence, Rhode Island. In February of 2021, he gave this history lesson and advice to the scientists of the Artemis generation. Basically, here we are, okay, 50 years after Apollo, and I'm reminded of uh, a comment by uh, essentially Mark Twain, which is something like, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So we're not going to try to tell you what to do, but there's a lot of lessons here that are really important. And one of them is exemplified by this 50th anniversary, Next Giant Leap, which is uh, Artemis is on uh, to Mars, and that's a critically important thing here because Basically, we need to practice for Mars. That's what one of the major things that Artemis is going to do. Mars is not the moon, not only in terms of its geology, but also in terms of the time delay, uh, in terms of um, communications with the Earth. So I'm going to first talk briefly about broad setting and sequence of the Apollo missions and some general lessons learned. So what did I do? I worked at NASA headquarters as a systems engineer in 1968 to 1973. A, a critical point for you all is, yes, get young people involved. This was my postdoc. I immediately went from looking at carbonate basin evolution and the Devonian of the Appalachians to working on the Apollo program. So we do need young people. It works, okay? Exploration strategy, we try to figure out, these, this is a list of my jobs, basically. Uh, I was involved with a lot of people in doing these things. What questions to address? Landing site selection, where do we go? Traverse planning, what do we do when we get there? Science and engineering synergism. How do we implement the science goals and objectives? I'm gonna come back to this one because working shoulder to shoulder with the engineers is a critically important thing to get going from the start. You need to work shoulder to shoulder every day with the engineers, operations people, the astronauts, etc. Astronaut training, how do we train test pilots? And then of course, work towards having geologists as crew members. And of course we need to do mission simulations. This is really important. You have to practice again and again and again again and again and again. This is really critical. Mission operations, I worked in the, uh, the actual missions and, and building 30 mission control in the science support room. And then of course, when the astronauts got back, we had extensive post-mission debriefings and analysis. We got their feedback individually and collectively, and then we replanned re the subsequent missions. This was the feed forward, et cetera. So these are the things that I base this on 
And again, my view here is a bit more of a in the trenches kind of thing. It's really important to follow up on Renee's point here that Apollo was totally guided by scientific goals and objectives, broadly to understand the nature, internal structure, and history of the moon and its environment. And there were four ways to do this. The surface science stations, primarily the ALSEP, the surface exploration, that was the field geology and experiment and some geophysical instruments that were carried, particularly on Apollo 17, the gravimeter, et cetera. And indeed, orbital exploration, the astronaut in orbit was doing science all the way along. And then finally, the moon is a platform. Jack alluded to far side astronomy implementation. And again, we did that on the moon too. And I'll come to that briefly in a minute. So contrary to a lot of belief uh, of the general community, there was a huge range of science at all levels during Apollo. Let's just talk about the uh, Apollo missions. And this, there's an important lesson here, okay? The first four missions, seven, eight, nine, and 10, were precursor missions. You don't just get up, build a spacecraft, go to the moon. You have to test it. Command module, seven, uh, getting out of the Earth's gravity field, eight, nine, and 10, practicing, in fact, the whole full-up situation, both on the Earth and Mars. This was all prior to, of course, Apollo 11. Next slide, please. Now, the next missions, Apollo 11, 12, 13, and 14, they were also precursors in a lot of ways and very evolutionary. That's the key here is evolution, evolutionary missions, okay? Uh, you're not just repeating them, you're learning from each one, and they're all critically important. What did those four learn, okay? The first four learned, you know, how to uh, land safely, deploy experiments, collect rocks and soils. Apollo 12, you know, increase state time on the lunar surface, increase the number of EVA periods, and demonstrate pinpoint landing. This was critical. This was critical on Apollo 12 to land next to the surveyor spacecraft. And then, of course, on Apollo 14, provide equipment for transport of tools and samples with the other, essentially, with a mobile equipment transporter. Now, this set the stage for what I would call on 15, 16, and 17, the scientific expeditions of the moon. These were Lewis and Clark-like expeditions with multiple objectives, incredibly involved in you know, three EVAs, a lunar rover, a whole variety of things that enable really Apollo 15 to be the, the first scientific expedition, 16 and 17 to follow on and perform beautifully, even better each one. I wanna turn now to see what this required. This is what science and engineering is all about. This required orbital plane change to access high uh, latitudes, like at Apollo uh, 17 and Apollo 15. Uh, we were able to work with the engineers to increase the number of EVAs to three, provide mobility to reach distant targets, the rover, uh, send a geologist as a member of the surface crew. You just saw how critically important that was. And then we were even gonna send roving vehicles. I wanna come back to this at the end, which is indeed, to try to think about how we optimize human and robotic interactions with combined rover, robotic rover, human rated rovers for, in fact, uh, Artemis follow-on missions. What was the legacy of Apollo and the lessons for Artemis? We have these six beautiful missions here landing on the surface. We learned huge amounts for the moon. I'd love to bore you to death with all the lessons we learned uh, from the science, of course, but that's the foundation of our exploration of other planets, etc. So what do we learn? Okay, let's take a look at some general lessons from Apollo. Okay, like Apollo, the Artemis program will be evolutionary, okay? Early Artemis missions, <laughs> you know, we're starting almost over again, okay? We need to learn how, relearn how to explore the moon. We have a new launch vehicle, new transportation system, gateway, new landing systems, new international partnership to coordinate and manage, detailed roles, TBD. Uh, uh, okay, we got a lot of learning to do there. New astronauts, new suits, new and very extreme illumination conditions, 
and uncertain levels of surface mobility and EVA duration and sample return mass. These are all huge unknowns. So we have to, we can't be starting with a scientific expedition to the moon on the first go. We've got to learn how to do all this and we've got to work shoulder to shoulder with engineers to optimize uh, the scientific return. I also want to point out a number two here, the misnomer of mission control. Mission, it's really mission coordination. I think the best way to think about the activities on the moon and going forward is to think the American football analogy. The team, the astronauts are on the field, the quarterback, the commander calls the local plays, but he has, he or she has sideline and deeper backup input. Okay, think about that. You have the coach along the sideline, you have the defensive off offensive coaches, and you got all the people up in the uh, up in the booths, you know, also doing these analyses. And each one has a different perspective and provide input if the quarterback needs it. And the quarterback, of course, looks over to the sidelines uh, for signals from time to time. And if things really get tough, okay, a timeout is called and a little bit of replanning is going on. So I think this is the best way to think about it, okay? The team on the field with a quarterback and a team, and indeed, it's not, you don't run in every five minutes to tell them what to do. You basically let them do it themselves and provide help as needed. So how do we prepare the team on and in the field on the moon? Well, I'd like to think about, I think it's really important to understand the concept of situational awareness, okay? So what is that all about? Basically, situational awareness can map out into the fact that when you're there, you are the one who knows what's going on in the best possible way. Yes, you can have input from the outside, but always remember, it is the crew on the surface that knows what's going on infinitely more than anything you can get from remote observations or even TV, uh, you know, updates, uh, high, de high definition TV, etc. They will still know better what's going on. So really respect that situational awareness. And again, the best strategy, one we included at Apollo really, was T cubed. Train them, trust them, and then turn them loose. They will be the ones who have the situational awareness, be there to help. That's why they call it a science support room, but it is not mission control, okay? Also remember Krikalev's law. I'll tell you what that is in a second. Sergei Krikalev is one of the most amazing astronauts going. Uh, he is Soviet slash Russian uh, cosmonaut, uh, amazing guy. And remember that we are training for Mars. We need to practice crew autonomy. And what is Krikalev's law? This relates in part to what we've been talking about in terms of our um, discussion about lessons from ISS. Read this paper, Crew on the ISS, Creativity or Determinism. And what Sergey points out is that the crews are in fact uh, really on ISS, minimizing the creativity and optimizing from the ground the determinism. That needs to be really fought when people are on the moon. We will be exploring on the moon. We need to optimize the creativity. So a couple of other points here. What principles and guidelines to use? Well, the Artemis program goals are clear. Um, these are the same kinds of things we had in Apollo. And not only will these be guidelines, but each one will be different and clear. Remember that all individual Apollo missions were built on a foundation of this whole list of things, okay? Geological training, classrooms, so all these things, all of these things were repeated again and again and again with each crew, and these became more and more intensive in detail with each mission. The integration of flight operations, including flight directors and NASA management into aspects of the training and field training, one of the best things that Gordy ever did was to get all these people out into the field to see how the sausage is made when you're doing geological investigations. Do that. That's what it helped with the science and engineering synergism 
where we integrated the scientific goals and objectives at all levels, the astronauts to Apollo mission director, they were on our side. They were trying to help us do all these kinds of things. And mission simulations in the field and mission control, uh, in the field and mission control, simulate, simulate, practice, practice. We had debriefings, lessons learned from each succeeding mission, and then put those into the next plan. So science operations. These were structured around specific experiments, and, and basically there were instrument experiments of the individual LCEP, the heat flow, et cetera. But the, the point here is these need to be integrated into Traverse planning, okay? It is really important that we develop something like the Apollo Lunar Field Geology Experiment. These are Gene Shoemaker, Gordon Swan, Bill Mulberger were the PIs. This was the key to the science support room, back room. It was an experiment, okay? We need to have people who are in charge. We need to have a hierarchy. We need to have something like the Apollo Lunar Field Geology Experiment so that it isn't just a bunch of random inputs. And also there were mission rules that set scientific and experiment priorities and serve to help and plan contingencies. I'll come back to that in a second. Geological traverse planning, uh, you know, these were really important. They followed Apollo program mission goals and objectives designed by a small group, JSC, USGS, NASA headquarters, et cetera, implemented, interacted, and iterated with the astronauts, operations, and science community. And they always had primary and backup contingency traverses. Uh, for example, what happens if the LRV doesn't work? Well, you know, you've got to walk. Uh, they were not scripts. That's another thing I want to just kill wherever I can. They were plans and almost never stayed the same during the mission. No one in their right mind would go into the field, Antarctica, the bottom of the ocean, anywhere um, without a plan. Okay. So the players in this were diverse. I won't go into them here, but there was a whole bunch of different people that had input and reviewed these things. And it's important to continue this kind of interaction because this is how you educate people, get them on their side, on your side, and help them help actually put input into the final traverses. So how to support the team on and in the field on the moon? How did it all work during a mission? The science support backroom, the Apollo field geology experiment and mission control, field geology team. The backroom communicated with mission control and the Capcom. These were done through one person. It was uh, Jim Lovell, the Apollo 13 commander. Uh, in um, the Apollo, during Apollo 15 mission, for example, because you don't want to have multiple inputs into somebody who's communicating or making the final decision. You need to have a summary of that, and you need to have somebody like an astronaut who knows what's going on. That was very effective. Uh, mission astronaut backup crews were often observers in the back room, and there was a hotline to Building 31, the science area, science support team. So that's another point I want to make. We don't have to have everybody in the same room. Actually, it's bad to do that. You need to have smaller number of people with inputs that can be uh, summarized into a pyramid-like input. And the science instrument deployment monitoring, the ALSEP, don't put them in the same room. There's a separate MCC back room, have communications, but don't put too many people in that room. That was James Head from the Department of Earth and Environmental and Planetary Sciences at Brown University, Providence, Rhode Island. He was speaking in February of 2021.